Welcome to episode 56 of the Bass Lessons Melbourne Player Profile Podcast. Um, this is currently, as I'm recording this, Saturday the 28th of March, and a lot of the world is in COVID-19 lockdown, um, ourselves included down here in Melbourne. So it's uh, an interesting time for everybody, um, not least the arts industry. Um, so I hope everybody's surviving, staying safe, um, being creative. Uh, and I'm going to use this time to be updating the YouTube channel, doing some live streams, a um, bunch of cool stuff. So all is not lost. But back to today's episode, um, Anthony Wellington is, he really is a base Jedi. <laughs> Um, I first kind of became aware of him uh, with the Victor Wooten Bass Workshop DVD and just his concept on uh, on rhythm um, he did this amazing uh, uh, lesson uh, where he presented the idea of a rhythm ruler which is something I use with a lot of my students um, a, a great way of visualising the, the beats within a bar um, so yeah, Anthony Wellington. Uh, he also plays bass or, or played bass for Victor Wooten's live shows. So anyone that's good enough to get that call uh, deserves to be checked out in a deeper capacity. <laughs> so um, Anthony was down here doing, uh, trying to do some um, workshops and stuff. They didn't quite come off, but... Um, I managed to to get him round to BLM headquarters, and we had a, a great great hang. He's a super lovely guy, amazing musician. That Federer he has is beautiful. Um, and in this interview, um, he does drop some amazing knowledge bombs. Shout out to Scott Space Lessons for that phrase. <laughs> Uh, with regards to uh, a whole bunch of different things with, um, in terms of learning the instrument, in terms of teaching the instrument. So that was really interesting for me to hear his perspective on a bunch of those different things. Uh, yeah, it's was, it was really, it's been a while since we recorded this one. So listening back to it, watching back on it, it was, uh, it was pretty cool to, to revisit. So, um, quick shout out to the sponsors of this podcast, which is FBase. You can find FBase at www.fbase.com. They have been handcrafting, hang, handcrafting, handcrafting guitars and basses for over 40 years, offering um, modern designs and contemporary inspired designs. So, if you're in the market for uh, a new bass, I highly recommend checking out FBase. Um, they have something for everybody. Um, and I really appreciate their support with this podcast. So, without further ado, um, please enjoy episode 56. Anthony Wellington. Thank you. 
guys, how's everybody doing? This is Craig from Bass Lessons Melbourne and today for the Player Profile interview I am joined by Mr. Anthony Wellington. Hey! Anthony, it's a real pleasure Thank to you. have you out here. Thank you for having us, um, I appreciate it. Uh, it's really cool, I appreciate it. I know you're super busy down under. Yeah, try um, to stay busy. Yeah. yeah. You've been down here a few times before? I came down earlier this year and, um, and I had some clinics lined up, did a clinic in Auckland Last early this year, I keep saying last year, but it seems almost a year. Yeah. And then I did one in Sydney and did some lessons. I didn't have any gigs, but I enjoyed it so much that I thought about bringing my camp idea down here. Mm. So I did a camp in Auckland and wanted to do one in Melbourne, but it didn't happen in doing a camp in Sid Sydney. So it's a camp, clinic, and some lessons. Yeah. Oh, cool. We're going to like hopefully travel the world doing that thing. Yeah. That sounds like a pretty cool yeah. way to see the world and bring it to people. So because everybody can't come to America or... Especially all the way down in Auckland. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. can't really get much further away from yeah. America as New Zealand. Yeah. So I like traveling and it's a way of getting in some vacation time and traveling <coughs> and see places that I've never been or places that I love and still get the education out. So Yeah. Are you pretty busy back home? Does this feel like a bit of downtime? In a way, um, I like staying busy. I'm one of those kind of guys that if I'm not busy... I feel a little weird. I get a little antsy. I just like, you know, I just did five lessons in a row and I just felt like, is that it? You know, I'm so used to doing, on a good day for me, I feel comfortable if I do at least eight, eight, nine or ten. But five, because I've been doing it so long, five goes by pretty fast. And, I, yeah. you know, that's five straight without eating or anything. But I like it. You know. Yeah, that's yeah. intense. So um, maybe let's just find a little bit about yeah. how you arrived at where you are today. Yeah. You know, how did you kind of getting to playing bass, where did you grow up, what was that music scene like and how did that influence how you play today? Of course, you know, all of us have influenced by so many things and it starts with my my parents and my sisters. My, I come from a very musical family and nobody plays instruments, but you could, the music just oozes out of them. My mom always sang and hummed while she was doing tasks around the house and, and, and we had the popular house in the neighborhood so all the parties were there. And, my mom and my dad had parties and played music. And I just, it was really weird. Um, I grew up in a, in a hood in Washington, D.C. in the ghetto. And um, musicians were self-taught. And it just happens to be in the mid-70s at the height of funk mm. and that kind of playing. So all of the bass players in the neighborhood, and there were only bass players. 
it was a neighborhood that didn't have any bands because everybody <laughs> played bass. Because that was the instrument you wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, Larry Graham and Louis <laughs> Johnson and um, Mark Adams from Slave. So they would get together at Andy Ollie's house and have these bass jams. Wow. And I would go as a kid, and I didn't play, but I just liked the music. I was drawn to the instrument. And I would go, and these older guys, I was probably 10, 11, and 12, these older guys would get together and play these bass jams. And she could play the newest funk lick, and I would listen. And so that went on for a couple of years, and then my family moved to Maryland, out of D.C. into Maryland. And it just so happens that this young band was forming, and they needed a bass player. And the drummer's dad had been a major recording artist, and he had gear, and he had people lined up to book gigs. I didn't own a bass. My sister started dating a guy across the street who had a Fender Music Master, a white Fender Music Master. And I lied. I told these kids that I played bass. But the thing was, in my mind, I was already a bass player because I had been exposed to it and I had been exposed to the music. And if, if you expose somebody, you know, culturally and in the environment, they can become musical that way. Like if a, if a kid moved up from Cuba, 25-year-old kid who never played bass and started studying with me, I might have to teach him the fundamentals of bass, but I wouldn't have to teach him the tumbao. He just lived that. So they didn't have to teach me 16th note triplets. I lived that with the kind of music that was played in D.C. Sure. So you knew, you knew how it should sound? I knew how it should sound. You just needed to get the facility. Yeah, and so I lied to these kids and said I played bass, and it came to me fast, and you know we played a lot locally and did some regional tours. It was fun. So I've been playing for a long time, and, and it's really weird. I know I was about 13 or 14, but I really can't ever not remember having a bass in my hand. Even younger than that, even though I wasn't playing. Just a blur. Yeah, when I, when I think about myself at three years old, I'm sure I had a bass in my hand. <laughs> I still see a bass in my hand, but it wasn't there, you know, so. Maybe you were just like crushed under <laughs> But, you know, um, when I was growing up, we used the term, unfortunately, I mean, that was the time, but we used the term black music and white music. So rock and roll was white music and funk and R&B was black music. And one of the primary differences between those genres is that rock music is guitar driven. Mm -hmm. So if you said hum a rock song because you want to give somebody a good idea what the song was, you would hum the guitar part. Like if I said smoke on the water, you wouldn't hum the bass part, you would hum the guitar part. But if I said brick house, you would hum the bass part, you wouldn't hum the guitar part, yeah. you wouldn't the keyboard part, you, wouldn't, you might not even do the vocals. You might do that drum roll in the beginning, but you, and your head would do just like that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just make this joke that if you ask the keyboard player in the Commodores to hum Brickhouse, he's going to go, um, dun, dun, uh, uh, uh. If you ask the guitar player in the Commodores to hum Brickhouse, they're going to go, uh, 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 uh. So that music, that R&B and funk music was identified by that instrument. Yeah, yeah. So. Even, I mean, I get, you know, my girlfriend, she gives me stick because I'll hum a song, a pop song or whatever, and I'm just humming the bass line along <laughs> with the radio. I'm saying, mm, 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 mm. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Even if there's like a melody on top, I've just drawn, just been, always been drawn, probably similar to yourself, I've just always been drawn to music that had like a real prominent bass, groove, pocket. Low sound. frequencies and time. If it's defining the time, 
and it's defining low frequencies I was drawn to it yeah same, same thing I was drawn to drums because of that timing and those low frequencies of the bass drum but bass was ideal because it was that bridge that everybody talks about between the harmony instruments and between the drums the rhythm so yeah. it's a true it is the true rhythm section instrument it's, you bo know? it's both in one it's both in one yeah, yeah. So did you start out on that Fender Music Master? I started on that Fender Music Master and at some point I convinced my mom to buy me one. And so that was the first bass that I were owned. They short skills? They were, yep. Mm -hmm. Which I think is great to start out on. Yeah. And um, when I was a kid I really wanted to be a scientist. I had got some guitars much younger, guitar and bass, but I took them apart because I wanted to see how they work before I was really in, one, I was in elementary school before I wanted to be a musician so I wanted to know how they work. But when I got that one, I remember taking out the pickup. It was a bad idea. I took out that <laughs> lipstick pickup and I found a DiMarzio Gibson style pickup and routed this big hole and <laughs> changed the whole tone of it and everything. But it was the thing people were doing. They were putting pickups in their bases and I just thought it was a good idea. At the time, you know, looking back now, you think that's a vintage bass, but at the time it was a new bass. So it was a new bass, yeah. It, it wasn't vintage. I actually have a white Music Master now because I started collecting some of the bases that I wanted as a kid mm -hmm. and of course I had that one but I got one yeah so yeah that's cool I have a lot of bases and a lot of them were I have a PVT 40 it yeah, weighs cool. about 175 pounds right. <laughs> is it black no it it's natural, natural? Yeah. I have a limbic series one I have a music man saber oh, I have cool. one of those Dan Armstrong lucite bases I got two aluminum neck Kramers <laughs> I just started buying all these bases that I wanted as a And it's kid. so much easier these days with like eBay, yeah, Reverb and stuff. It's like it's quite dangerous. The, the, the prices <laughs> are off the charts, but you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hopefully they're only going to go up. Yeah. You know, uh -huh. it's, a, it's, it's like gold. That's, it's, what, that's what I convinced myself. It's my 401k, <laughs> <laughs> those bases. That's it. Cool. Um, so you're kind of late teens, early 20s, gigging in the scene did you study I've, i i had a man i was really lucky that i was i grew up in this environment that emphasized bass and time and then mm -hmm. in, in high school i this my high school music teacher my second year this woman named um, mary cole and she introduced me to music theory and i didn't know that there was a why behind everything working i didn't know that i just knew that as a kid the barometer of how good you were the barometer of how good i was was how well I could mimic somebody else's part. Right. That was the gauge when you were gauging another bass player or another musician, how well they could learn that, you know, Lewis Johnson part or Bernard Edwards part. And then when she introduced me to theory and I got to see the inner workings of music, I became fascinated by that. Mm -hmm. Just knowing that if it sounds good to your ear, it'll make intellectual sense. If it makes intellectual sense, it'll sound good to you. She mm -hmm. introduced me to that. She wasn't a bass player, but she introduced me to sightseeing and, and theory and just the non-instrument specific stuff. Sure. And that just, then I just ran just with it. like the, the musician's man. toolkit. Yeah, the musician's toolkit. And she was also one that convinced me, because um, I was going to sign up for the military. She said, she t convinced me that I had what it takes to, be, to become a full-time musician. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, she's, she's. She changed the course of my life, oh. and she's still important to me. Um, she doesn't live close, but I'm, I owe her a visit because I'm a musician today, a lot because of her. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, and so then you're just kind of out on the road. 
Um, not a lot of road stuff, but a lot of regional stuff. I mean, I guess that's still road sure. stuff, but a lot of regional stuff. I did a stint, a short stint at University of Miami. And then um, people know that I played with Victor, so mm -hmm. um, that was just supposed to be a short stint. And it was supposed to be a two-week thing. When was this? This was in 92. Okay. And he decided, I'm sorry, I became friends with him early in the 90s. And he released Show of Hands, which was just solo bass. So he was touring with uh, himself and a drummer, J.D. Blair. Yeah. And then around 99... The group regulator. The group regulator, yeah. In 99, he released um, What Did He Say? And that was featured a band. And he decided to tour with his brothers. And right during that tour, he asked me... He knew I was self-employed. I was teaching bass by then. He asked me if I would take some time out to go on the road with him. And I did. And it was only supposed to be two weeks. I'm kind of leaving a lot of stuff out, but... Mm. I was, I was bitten by that bug. I like being on the road. I had never really traveled, so I love I mean, traveling. How, how did you guys cross paths? I mean, uh -huh. I, so somebody asked me had had I heard of this guy named Victor Wooten, and I said nah. So he brought in some music and played it for me, and I was like, that doesn't seem possible. So I went out and bought a cassette tape, and I like telling the story because I. Bought it from the cutout section, so it was only ninety nine cent. I didn't want to even gamble on them, you know. So I bought you kept this. your receipt just in I, case. Just in case. <laughs> so I listened to the stuff, and I was like, "Okay, that's pretty cool. It's innovative, you know. He's multi tracking all this bass stuff. It's impressive. But if you give me ten tracks, I could do that too." And I looked at the cassette and little writing and said, "There were no overdubs on this record." And I'm you're like, like "What?" <laughs> so what I had to do then, I had to go because I couldn't make sense of it, and I know why now I couldn't make sense of it. But I found that the Flectones were coming to town and I went to see them and there was like thousands of people out there. And I, and I was like the only black guy and, and I stuck out and they're playing this jazzy bluegrass kind of stuff. Mm. And I kind of went as a skeptic. I just wanted to, you know, like that can't be done. And once I saw them do it, then it made sense to me because traditional bass is played like this. You know, if the left hand is doing something and the right hand is doing a rhythm to match mm. it. But he was playing bass like a drummer. So that speed is like drummer speed. It's from that reciprocating motion of doing that. And bass players, bass players have already played like that. So once I saw him do it, I was like, I got it. I couldn't do it right away, but I, it made sense to me. So I started, we became instant friends. We exchanged numbers. And I started working on this stuff. And nobody was playing like that. Nobody else was playing like that then. And I didn't want him to show it to me. Hmm. So I would work on stuff on my own. And then when I saw him again, I would play it for him. He's like... That's pretty cool. We picked it up pretty good. And then he would see that sometimes I was achieving the same sound, but a different way. And he really, really liked that. Whereas if he had showed it to me, I'd have been locked into how he did it. It would have been great. But, but when I figured it, when I was figuring stuff out on my own, he was like, well, this is how I'm doing it. And I would say, this is how I'm doing it. And now we both have two ways of doing yeah. it. Yeah. I think that's really important. Like um, a lot of time I tell my students, I could show you how to do all of this whatever it is, the baseline or the scale or whatever it is we're working on. But if you take the time to explore it yourself and figure it out, you will learn it and remember it much better than if I just give you a sheet of paper with yeah. the information on it. So I think that kind of self-revelation is, is really important for learning. And it's important, yeah, that's, that's it. And, and the thing that can happen is I realized that a lick is a lot like a magic trick. And somebody's in love with a magic trick, like I love magic, and I never want people to tell me how it's done because I want to stay in love with that trick. And soon somebody tells you how a magic trick is done, you stop liking the trick. And I, and I found that when I was showing students, students had this lick they wanted to learn by Victor or Jocko or whoever. 
and they just listened to it every day and they were blown away by it. But as soon as you would show them how it was done, it would take the the fun out of it or the illusion from it. And then they wouldn't listen to it anymore or appreciate it anymore. So I would do the same thing. I would just make them learn on their own mm. because we have a tendency to learn stuff just for the sake of knowing it, but not for the lesson that lives inside of it. But the lesson that lives inside of it or the concept that lives inside of it is revealed when you learn it on your own, not when somebody shows it exactly. to you. Yeah. So that it's that exploration. Um, <clears throat> you get the dynamics, you get the articulation. That's why I'm not a big fan of tab. It'll give you the right notes and maybe the right location, but all the things that make it conversational, like the space somebody leaves or the articulation, the dynamic, the phrasing, the emotion, you get that from dropping the needle and going back, even if you have to go back a hundred times, but you won't get it from tabs. Exactly, because music's an auditory. It's auditory, yeah. You gotta listen. Just like, if, just like if you're impersonating somebody. So if you want to impersonate a famous person, you just can't read their words. But if you listen to them, you get all the stuff that's not the words, because we're all saying the same words, but their phrasing, the space between words, or the pauses that they take, mm -hmm. that's what makes somebody a good impressionist, and those are the things they're studying. Yeah. You know, so it's the same thing where you're really getting inside of these baselines that you're learning. Yeah. Yeah. So who who are some of the players that you reckon you really kind of dug into? I mean, obviously you said you grew up around the, the funk scene yeah. early on, but um, there's maybe a couple of guys you would say you kind of dug into that quite a lot and really informed your style of playing. Yeah. When when I was growing up, because because like unfortunately funk is considered a technique now, but it was a genre, it was a style of music, yeah, and it was yeah. a way of life. Like hip hop, it's a way of life. But now people are studying it as a technique, but they don't realize that um, Larry Graham had l number one songs. He had a song called One in a Million that has a simple bass part and he was singing. So it was it was a style of music. Funk was a style of music. This stuff, this stuff was charting, but now kids are listening to it just for the technique of it. So the benefit of, of it being music that was played on the radio, my parents played it and they didn't play it as bass music. They just put on some Motown or they put on some Slide and Family Stones yeah. Pop music. It was pop music, pop yeah. Music. And so I got the benefit of hearing it as music and not just separating bass out that mm. came later. But but um, so it was based. It was really based on what I was exposed to. So um, and some some of those guys I was fans of before I knew who they were, like Wilton Felder, who was a great sax player for the who was a great sax player for the Crusaders. But he played on "I Want You Back," you know. And so he didn't. They didn't really. Motown didn't really give musicians credit, but I mm. knew that it was a great musician and with mm. all of that Motown stuff that Jameson did and Bob Babbitt did, that those were guys I was fans of without knowing who they were. Yeah. But I could hear the differences in the playing. Mm. I knew it was a different cat. But when it came to people who I knew, knew who they were, Larry Graham was one of them because he had his own band, Graham Central Station. And Bernard Edwards was famous, part of a famous band that we knew as a duo, you know, with Sheik yeah. and, and Lewis Johnson. Because he had... Yeah, these, are, these are all like really... Um, they've all got really strong voices yeah. on the instrument. Because it's pop music, like you said. And Lewis Johnson, <clears throat> you know, Lewis Johnson had bass solos in pop records. Had a bass solo in a pop record. Like yeah. we think of famous jazz musicians or fusion musicians having solos on their records. But, you know, David Hood did a solo on I'll Take You There by the Staple Singers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a bass solo in a pop record, you know. And so when you hear those ba breakdowns that Larry Graham did. Like Stomp. Stomp, or when you hear the um, Daz 
by disco um, by Brick Daz Disco Jazz that had a bass solo in it yeah. and they they were charting songs so yeah. well I mean like you listen to like a Jameson line and it's almost a bass solo it's in improvisation itself, like yeah. Darling Dean or something like that Darling Dean so. <laughs> God <laughs> sometimes I'm like how did he play that with one finger <laughs> or what's going on but Darling Dear. I know right I mean there's a record your audience should get it's a Michael Jackson record called Strip Mixes man and basically somebody got the masters and basically left this kid's voice on this 10 year old Michael Jackson 10 12 year and most of the music they stripped down to Jameson so when you hear that version of Doll and Deer it's Jameson track and 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 Michael and they did that with I Want You Back and they just oh, brought instruments wow. so you hear you hear it was like a vocal bass record almost yeah and then the percussion would come in and Got strip mixes by Michael strip Jackson. Mixes. We should listen to one later. That'd be after the, yeah, that you, sounds great. Pass on if you guys go check that record out. You yeah. will love it. There's but, a similar one, um, Graceland, the Paul uh-huh. Simon album. There's one where it's like uh, the 25th anniversary, and they have like bass and voice only versions of and all that fretless stuff. <sighs> just with those African choir voices. Yeah, um, I got to check that out. It's, yeah. Speaking of which, me and Bakiti share a birthday. Really? Yeah, exa- he's act- exactly 10 years older than me. Ah, yeah. So we kind of contact each other sometimes on ah, my cool. birthday. Yeah. We try to. That, that album changed changed my life. That, yeah. Hearing that stuff, I was like, wow, that was unreal. Yeah, um, so, but I have to say, um, a lot a bass player that a lot of people don't know about named Mark Adams. He was, in a, he was in a band called Slave, and a lot of people who grew up listening to funk as non-technique music recognize them as maybe the premier funk band ever. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was... He was a big influence on me because of the songs and because as a kid growing up playing bass, I could see myself in him. He had he was a skinny black kid with a big afro, and I was a skinny black kid with a big afro, and he was just laying down these amazing funk lines. Mm-hmm. And so he was a huge influence on me. Yeah, right? Mark Adams. So check him out, Mark Adams. Similar vibe to um, Pleasure Glide. Yeah, like uh, yeah. Kind of vibe? Nathaniel Phillips. Yeah, That's- that was one of the songs. To be considered one of the cats, you need to be able to play that. Yeah. Can you do that line? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. No, no, I mean, no, can no, you no, do no. that line? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you do that? That can was a barometer. Yeah. Yeah. He killed that line. Oh, and and uh, it's so far forward in the mix as well. Like, yeah. It really sits up front. So. Yeah, a lot of that songs have that kind of bite to it. And he's still really, really active. Oh, cool. Playing a lot of smooth jazz festivals in the States, but he's yeah. really, really, really good. Cool. Well, you kind of came to prominence to me on the... Um, on the Victor Wooten DVD. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're doing, you give that amazing workshop on on time. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Okay. On the the rhythm stick, the rhythm ruler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me growing up, I, I did piano lessons and uh-huh. studied and stuff, but it's kind of like when you see the music written on the page, it's kind of abstract. It is. You know, mm-hmm. crotchets, quavers, eighth notes, chord mm-hmm. notes, whatever you want to think about it. It doesn't really give you a visual representation of where those beats lie in time. That's why I came up with it. Because I want to give people a visual representation yeah, of so this abstract kind of like, thing. It was always yeah. like, no, it's on the last 16th of beat four. And I'm like, mm. well, it's really hard for me to kind of figure that out. Right. Um, I, obviously, the counting method, one eanda, two mm-hmm. eanda, but sometimes that can be a bit difficult as well. Yeah. You know. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, there's another way. You know, like yeah. There's another way of doing this. Thing so I kind of checked it out a bit and did the whole thing where you move in the subdivision by one sixteenth yeah. at a time. Yeah. Um, There's a lot more to that lesson that I didn't get to cover. Or even using the metronome and you 
playing the same line but the metronome changes yeah. to the different mm -hmm. yeah. sixteenth, which is super hard as well. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, over time, that's become really useful to me as, okay. as a teaching tool uh -huh. as well for people who are like struggling with a even just like one bar yeah. of rhythm and go, let's just plot it out against this rhythm rhythm, right. almost like a graph, uh -huh. so you can see, you know, the space between the notes and where right. it should lie. Right. Oh, it's there. It's like, yeah, it's there. <laughs> you know what the cool thing about that, you saying that to me, is that without even knowing, I, I know that I'm influencing bass players all over. You know, yeah. so so we kind of fought against those videos getting out because people can just put stuff on YouTube. And then we realized what we didn't want was people putting the whole thing out, but releasing it in snippets got people interested in pursuing it and people bought the DVD so that I, helped. Yeah, I got the DVD. Yeah. And I think my parents bought me the double bass workshop DVD yeah, yeah. for Christmas one year or something like that. So, yeah. it's, I mean, I want to hear great bass playing. I want to hear bass players with time. And I, and I know that helped a lot of people. And yeah. people, people tell me all the time that's where they know me from. And I've been touring with Victor 10 years already. Yeah. And people know me from that. So, yeah. Yeah. How did, I mean, how did you devise that concept? Um, was it for teaching or was it f for you? A bit it, it was for teaching because the thing for me is... Like, I've always been a math guy, and I mm. try to see the math and stuff that I do well first. Mm. And so I've always had a good feel, and a lot of that was environmental and cultural. But I always want to have an intellectual understanding of what it is that I do well. Yeah. Like, I talk by feel. I'm talking to you right now by feel. But if you ask me what word was the verb in the sentence, I can intellectually tell you that that word was the verb. But I wasn't thinking about it while I was doing it. So I play music the same way. So I'm playing by feel. And all 16 of those subdivisions have a particular feel for me. And they all, I need them to be all equally comfortable without being conscious of it. But I wanted to be, I wanted to have an intellectual understanding of it. And when I started teaching, that was even more important. And one of the things, I don't know if I conveyed this in that video is, the whole point isn't for you to be able to intellectually understand it so you can do it. The whole point is to do it by feel. Because if somebody says, Let's just say, um, let's just say we got time going. Um, I, I don't, I don't need, think, think I need to plug it in, but... Um, do you want me to just put a click track on? Yeah, put a click track on. Tem tempo? Let's level. do 100 beats per minute. So let's say you're in the studio, you're a producer, you're the artist, you're the producer, and you said you want me to play this bass line. It's just root, fifth root, root on the downbeat, let's say the fifth. On the, it's on a tough call, man. Oh, it's a tough call. <laughs> on the end, and the next root again on the beat, too. So I'll go. And you say, man, I like that. It feels good. But I want to add a minor third. You say, let's put that minor third on, on beat three. Right? I need to be able to instantly doing that. I'm playing it by feel, but intellectually as a command, I need you to be able to do it on the command. So you tell me where to play that C. So anything after beat two is available for me to play the C, we'll move it around. But you're a producer, you want to try out different sounds. So tell me where to move it in right. subdivision. Let's do it on the end of three. Mm. I need to be able to do it instantly on command. Okay. Again, another. Um, on the ah of two. 
totally different feel. Okay. Yeah. So even though I'm playing it by feel, I need to be able to respond on ver on a verbal command. So without understanding what it is intellectually, I'll never be able to do that. So a lot of bass players have all of those feels inside of them, but if you have to give it to them on command, they might not know what it is. Or even even like a band setting, mm -hmm. you know, where the keyboard player is like, no, that hits on the right. E of one. Yeah. If you're like, can you play it so I can get yeah. it? Everyone's like, oh. So stop <laughs> that again. Yeah. So I'll do it on the E of two, the N of two, of two. Three, the E of three, N of three, of three, beat four, the E of four, of, N of four, and finally the of four. So I need to be able to instantly do that. The producer or the artist can't wait for me to hunt and pet and find it because I'm costing them money. Exactly. And in, in, in a professional musical setting, when you, once you're costing the artist or the producer money or the network money, they have a word for that, and that word is unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to be able to no, instantly do it. Guitar player. Guitar player, right. <laughs> you need to be able to do it on command. So no matter how good you play by feel, you're missing a big part exactly. of it if you don't understand intellectually what it is that you're doing. Yeah. And that's kind of why I came up with the grid, was to get people to understand intellectually what they were doing that they could naturally do, and also for people who couldn't naturally do it, here's a way to see it. Yeah. It's like the other half of, exactly what you said before, it's the other half of the language, it's the syntax, it's the grammar, yeah. you know? Um, and it just, there's, like, why not learn both, mm -hmm. you know, and be even more employable? Yeah. It's, it's, Knowing something is never not, knowing something will always be better than not knowing something. <laughs> I can't think of any situation in life where not knowing something is better than knowing something. I mean, even if you think of something dire like... When you're going to die. You're going to die. Like if, like, if the doctor knew I was going to die in two months, I would rather for him to tell me because that would affect how I live those two months. But not knowing, he, he robbed me of that control or, or the choices that I might want to make. So... I can't think, think of all the bases you could have bought. Yeah, yeah. And the bad thing, especially with music is, it's the only medium, it's the only art form I can think of where people brag about not knowing something. I don't need to know any theory, I just play. I was like, a ballerina doesn't do that. A ballerina won't brag about not knowing something. An artist won't brag about not having studied muscle tone or lighting or shading. Mm -hmm. But musicians wear it like a badge of honor, like not knowing something. Imagine if you had a... A, a surgeon that was about to do surgery on you say, I don't know anything about surgery. I'm just going to grab this scalpel and cut that Let's whatever. Let's do it by feel. <laughs> yeah, we'll do it by feel. Like, no. Nope, no <laughs> <laughs> you know, so a mechanic won't do it. I can't think of any walk of life other than musicians mm. where people brag about not knowing something. Yeah. I don't want to work with cats like that. Yeah. 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 And, and it's true what you said as well, but it's developing a relationship with all of those subdivisions and knowing how it feels. <coughs> like I used to really struggle with the, sounds weird, but I used to really struggle with the A of four, mm -hmm. you know, just before one, especially if it was like shuffle sixteenths, uh -huh. you know. The, the sixteenth note triplet would be 24 subdivisions and it'd be, I was working with a guy on that in that last clinic, but that is harder because there's so many more. Yeah, because it's like, it's so much 
later and yeah. stuff and it so yeah um but you, you just spend time with it and you understand oh that's how it feels and this is how what i'm trying to intellectually aim for and you kind of match them both up and it's some it's like mm-hmm. it's a it's like a an easier way of to practice it's, i find it, it's a rhythmic ear training mm. just like you want to develop how a minor third sounds and i knew how a minor third sounds before i knew that term because mm. i was learning these songs r&b songs and all of them in minor keys and i called it a slant because from the root note to the next note it was a slant so i was developing my own theory so what if you do what if no i call it a line Okay. Yeah, I call this a perfect. I call it a perfect fourth a straight line, right. and I call it a perfect fifth a backward slant, a reverse slant. Oh. So I had all this terminology, but it didn't line up with everybody else's terminology. <laughs> so I had to learn that a minor, that a slant was a minor third. But that doesn't mean I still can't think of it as a slant because it still holds true. True. Yeah. You know, Whatever so. it means for you, it could be purple. But I needed to make it intellectual, and that's and and that's one of the keys to bassology because mm. what I realized as an urban player as a person who grew up in the hood and self-taught dropping a needle, that those urban players, <clears throat> players from the inner city a lot of times, we get good at music physically because we're dropping a needle and chasing these notes down, and we get really good sonically because we're chasing the notes around. And then I found when I started teaching, especially in suburban environments, that kids would get instruments and right away parents would enroll them in the lessons. So they might get some intellectual and visual stuff, but they were missing some physical stuff and some sonic stuff from not exploring the instrument on their own. Mm. So when I started bassology, I wanted to equally, I wanted to combine those two schools of playing, the, the, sonic and, the sonic and physical that you get from urban environments and visual and intellectual you get from suburban, suburban environments. Mm. So I have this concept now of any musical concept you know, you gotta know it equally well four ways, those four ways. And you can always ask yourself, of these four ways, which way am I the strongest? Of these four ways, which way am I the weakest? And you'll always know what you need to work on. Example, let's say the concept is a song, or let's say the concept is a scale, a major scale. So physically, you want to make sure I can play that physically. But sonically, so let me close your eyes for a second. Was that a major scale? Mm -hmm. So I played one note different. I played it kind of fast, that wasn't fair. But I played a flat seven. So sonically, you might have it together a little bit less than physically. The other thing is intellectually, um, A major scale starts from A in the, fit, in the formulas, whole, whole, half, whole, 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 half, with an alphabet letter change. So A, whole step to the next letter B, whole step to the next letter C, but it gotta be a whole step, so it's C sharp, half step D, letter change, whole step E, whole step F sharp, whole step G sharp, half step. So that's knowing what it is intellectually. Um, visually, that's the fourth way. Visually is, let's say we're in this room and all these amazing bases are in here. You gotta teach me that A major scale. There's no, and you gotta assume that I don't know anything. So teach me that A major scale. Or let me teach it to you. The first thing I would say, I would make sure you know the strings, mm. but then I would say, put your second finger, and I would have you do it with your eyes closed. I would say, put your second finger on the fifth fret of the E string. And if that's your four string bass, I would say the thickest string. Then I would say, put your pinky on the seventh fret of that E string. Then I said, we're going to go to the next thickest string, which is the A string. Your first finger on the fourth fret of the A string. I would move this fast, I'm going mm. fast. Then the second finger on the fifth fret of the A string, pinky on the seventh fret of the A string. I said, then we're going to go to the next thinnest string, which is the D string. First finger on the fourth fret, and I might name the notes, fourth fret of the D string, which is the F sharp. 
your third finger on the sixth fret of the D string, which is the G sharp, and to complete the octave, your pinky on the seventh fret of the D string with the A. So if somebody can teach me that or teach somebody, they see it visually. Mm. So for me, with any concept or any song, physically, sonically, intellectually, and visually, you can always ask yourself, of these four ways, which way I'm in the strongest, which way am I the weakest? And mm. for me, that's how I teach music. And I've just only been telling people this within the last couple of years, mm. but that's when I'm gauging their weaknesses. And then there are, and I definitely don't say this, but I'm gonna say it for the podcast. And there are two other ways that I can't teach really, but emotionally and spiritually. I don't want to try to teach somebody or tell somebody what an A major scale should be for them emotionally mm. or spiritually because they can deduce that and figure that out for their own. But the other four ways, I can teach that. True. And it's a complete method. You're not leaving anything out. So I don't teach the physical without the intellectual. I don't teach the physical without the sonic part of it, sonically. Mm. I don't teach the physical without the visual part of it, of anything I do. Awesome. Yeah, it's fun. Um, how do you, I have a lot of students, a lot of beginner students, uh -huh. um, how do you encourage or any methods for learning the names of the notes on the bass? Yeah, um, <clears throat> um, the thing with the name of the notes on the bass, that's an important to me because when somebody doesn't know the name of the notes on the bass, especially people who've been playing as long as we've been playing in our age, it all comes down to a lack of discipline. So I'll start somebody, I'll skip the beginners, they'll get something from this, but I'll say, I'll say, pretend like there's no bass in the room, you can't see a room, and I'll ask every player who's been playing a while, I'll say, what note is the first fret of the E string? They'll all say F. I say, yep, 69 years ago when the bass was invented, it was an F. 69 years from now, it'll be an F. Then I'll say, what note is the 20th fret of the A string? And they won't know, and I say, it's an F. 69 years ago it was an F, 69 years from now, then I'll say, what note is the 15th fret of the D string? They won't know, it's an F. 69 years ago, <laughs> 22nd fret of the D string is an F. So I said, remember, you knew that the first fret of the E string was an F, you didn't know that the 20th fret of the A string was an F. It's not that it's harder, you just didn't take the time out to learn. I said, and it's not hard, I said, if the notes moved around every day when you woke up, that would be hard. But it's the 69 years, the 20th fret of the A string has been an F. So, what I, so I try to figure out, why don't people know the notes on the bass? And I realized that when we're teaching people the notes on the bass, we're teaching them, uh, let's just say this is the fourth string. We're teaching them E, F, F sharp, G, G sharp, A. And really, that's teaching them how to recite in order. And reciting in order is important, but it's not the same thing as learning the notes because... They only know that the fourth fret is G sharp because they played G right before. And they have to, whenever they try and find a note, they have to go through that whole process. Yeah, yeah that's not the way to do it. So what I did was, I call this the business end because this is where we make our money and we play. And I call, so everybody knows the notes up to the fifth fret a lot of times. I call this the dusty end because nobody knows what's going on up here. So I say, I start students with the highest notes on their bass. And it's a two-fold lesson. So the first part of the lesson is, I have them make what I call a deck of cards. So we're gonna get a, a deck of index cards, we call them index cards, and you're gonna, a deck will consist of 13 cards. One of them will just be this chromatic scale, and you're listing all of the notes that you have and how many you have of each note. Like my highest note is G, so I'll put an asterisk above the G, and I have 11 Gs on this bass. And, and then, so under all of these 12 notes, you got how many you have, because that's, the most, one of the most important things with lessons is, if I'm teaching somebody the English alphabet, 
the first lesson isn't that the first letter is A. The first lesson is that there are 26 letters. Mm. So quantity, I have 125 notes on this bass with a range of 45, if that makes sense. So it's 125, but this A is 110 hertz. This is A110, this is A110, this is A110, this is A110. So when I get rid of the repeats, it's only 45 different notes, mm -hmm. about half of the piano. So I get them to see that distinction. Like a piano has 88 distinct frequencies, none of them repeat. Yeah. But this bass has 80 repeats. So I have them make those cards. The first card just has the notes listed and the quantity of each note. Then the other 12 cards are each individual note. So on the back side of that English card would be a G. When you flip it over, the left margin will be your open strings, B, oh, sorry, mm -hmm. let's say B, E, A, D, G. Mm -hmm. And on the G string, I have the numbers 24, 12, and open. Okay. On the D string, 17 and 5. On the A string, 22 and 10. On the E string, 15 and 3. Yeah. On the B string, 28. So those are where all 11 Gs are on this bass. Then that way they can start studying the notes without a bass in the hand. People wait to practice and study when they have a bass mm. in the hand. And we got a limited amount of time, but you always got your brain with you. So when you're at your office or at school, instead of getting on Facebook when you got 20 minutes, you can work on all your Gs. It's a cool idea. So that's the studying part. And I just say do two to five minutes every day. Study all the cards, but not a lot of time, two to five minutes. Then I say there's a playing version of it. So would you start that time yeah. for me? And I like, to, I like to work on theory and knowledge stuff in time. So I have them play the Gs. Just the Gs on the G string from high to low, because we're starting on the dusty end. And it's shooting free throws like a basketball. So if you miss, then you just keep going, right? Unless you keep missing it a lot, then you stop. Let's say you did that for five minutes or five hours. Then I'd have them do the two and a D. You're thinking G, G. Oh yeah, all, we're only working on G. Yeah, G. So high to low, so 17, five, 17. They don't have to say the numbers out loud. Loud. Then let's say they did that for five minutes or five hours. Then I have to do those five. I'll say the numbers 24, 12, open, 17 and five. But doing it with the metronome keeps you honest. Yeah. Not that you would do it this fast, but it's getting you to work on time at the same time. Yeah. Then a two on the A string, 22, 10, 22, 10. And it's shooting free throws, so if I miss one, I don't freak out. It's teaching me not to panic. Then I do those seven. I'm going fast, it's not this fast of a process, but I know we have a limited amount of time. 17, five, 22, 10, then I have to do the two on the E. Always the highest one first. 15, 3, 15, 3, 5 minutes or 5 hours, then I have to do those 9. 11, you know how many frets they have. Then I have them do this. Sorry. Then I have them do this. One note a week, or one note every other week, or one note a month. Because sometimes I have students who've been playing 20, 30 years, they don't know the notes. Well, I say, I'll say, you've already been playing 20 years, you don't know the notes on the bass. We're just going to do one note a month. 
and they, and in one month they're gonna really know the G's. Yeah. Then the next month we do G flats. And, and the next month they don't come back. And they don't come back, right? <laughs> I right. There basically, for one month and I learned one yeah. note. Yeah. <laughs> I like. Oh, this is. They still gotta work on the modes and all that stuff yeah. too. But I like the fact. <clears throat> I shouldn't say this, but I'm gonna say it. I like the fact that my my curriculum is designed to weed people out who aren't serious. It's designed to weed people out. That's why my students work and get the tour because they really want to do it. Yeah. If somebody wants to learn their favorite song every week, I will recommend somebody for that. Yeah. They don't have to spend as much money as they're going to spend on me for that. But once they want to know how that song works, there are not many people that can do that better. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I, so I, I am intentionally weeding out people yeah. who aren't serious about it and, and they're entitled to not be serious about it. But, exactly. And don't take this the wrong way, but why would you sign your kid up for math tutoring with Einstein if they're not serious about math? You, there's a cheaper way to do that. If they're just failing math, you know what I'm saying? But why would you spend that kind of money? You know what I'm saying? So for me, you know. Did you, does that mean you're comparing yourself to like, your no, Einstein? No, 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 no. I wish I was. <laughs> but he's one of my heroes. Because yeah. Einstein was the one that said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't know it well enough. That's my favorite, one of my favorite quotes. He said, you have to be able to explain it simply, not in a complex way. And if you can't explain it simply, it simply means you don't know it well enough. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I advise you to do something really similar with, um, see. with the notes, Learn, learning the names of the notes. Mm -hmm. Let me grab something that works. So I don't know if I maybe got it from you subconsciously, if I saw that you did it before, but super similar thing. Just finding all the instances of like F in yeah. the first 12 frets uh -huh. and just play through it. Oh, no, that's fine. I... Listen, and here's the reason why I don't do that. Yeah. Because they're still associating it with a shape. Right. And when I do it, when you do it this way, you remove all of those crutches. In the sense, you're making it harder, but they don't have a crutch that they can rely on. Yeah. You so, can find one and then just find yeah, the other. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not, I'm purposely removing that crutch. Okay. That's the reason why I didn't choose that method. Because I don't want them to think of an octave as a shape. Mm. That's good. Yeah. yeah. That's good to know. So, but. But if they're learning the notes, it doesn't make a difference yeah. what method they use. No, but that, yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. Yeah. And then also just like going, all right, let's learn the notes on the third, fifth, and seventh. Yeah. Instead of thinking, I'm going to learn all the notes on Reci one string. Reciting in order. Do this way, this way, this way, mm -hmm. and then you can start to fill in the blanks. That's the thing that happens when you do the cards, that's come up. Because first you might work on them chromatically, but you start to see notes that share frets have the same pattern as we move the string. Like 24, 12, open, 17, and 5. So that's the G string. But on the C string, if you had a C string or D string, this would be 24, 12, open, 17, 5, 22, 10. So you start to see a symmetry with notes that move in fourths and fifths. Yep. And so now you can make your pile of cards chromatically, or you can make your pile of cards fifths or fourths, whatever pattern you see on your own. Right. So I don't even tell students that because I want them to have, like we talked about earlier, some revelations on their own, like mm. they discovered it. Because yeah. sometimes I'll just pitch something to them slow and underhand to make them feel good about figuring it out on their own. Yeah. Like a coyote kind of teaching, like allowing <laughs> them. Like a good teacher. Yeah. Like a good teacher. If you guess how many coins I have in my hand, I'll give you both of them. <laughs> the coyote teaching. Yeah. <laughs> Native American. Uh, yeah, that's cool. I love that bass, man. Yeah, this is a this is a pretty cool. Um, so I've got the 
the jazz copy. Uh -huh. The same one, the brother. Where's that manufacturer out of? These are Japanese. Oh, wow. This is a 1983. So it became Ibanez. It's like an Ibanez yeah. mm -hmm. Roadster Blazer thing. But it's just a cool. I like it. Ash Maple P bass. It's got that sound. It's got that sound, you know, yeah. and for a fraction of a vintage Fender P bass. <laughs> really um, cool. And then one of the other things that really struck me, obviously, you know, you've got the the groove in the pocket that's come up and rooted in that 70s funk thing. Yeah. But you've also got this lyricism and melodic playing, uh -huh. um, which isn't so evident in that style of music. Uh -huh. So how did you develop that aspect of your playing? Yeah. You know, being able to play melodies, improvised melodies, even, you know, bass lines or runs that have a a vocal quality to it. People, you know, you just said it right there. People say that, and I don't think I was conscious of it before, but when I hear back, I do hear it. I'll just play something. And so what I was doing when I was growing up, and I was learning all of this cool Marcus Miller stuff when he was on the Luther Vandross record, for some reason, I started learning Luther's vocal lines at the same time, okay? So I would learn as many vocal parts as I can, and then I started thinking of this concept as my left hand is Luther Vandross, and my right hand is Maurice Hyde, you know? So Frank Sinatra, Fred Astaire, this hand is singing, this hand is dancing. So all of the rhythm is being taken care of here, and all the singing is, all the singing is being taken care of with the hand. So I just phrase like I talk, or sing, so it sounds lyrical, so black. <laughs> but I have to know the notes on the bass because I'm not looking at it. Yeah. And I just talk and it has built-in phrasing. So all I'm doing now is matching words to what I'm playing. How can that not sound lyrical? Now, <laughs> yeah. now the funny thing is, the funny thing is, I'm not even playing in time with the music. And that's what makes it sound lyrical. Yeah. I'm creating my own time independently of what you're hearing. Um, <laughs> and so then I started singing and I let my voice follow what I'm singing just like a singer so I don't have any preconceived things what I'm going to play I don't have any licks I'll just drop my hand on the bass that's the five so in this key I don't know what the notes is but let's say it's the five I know I can play the fifth pentatonic <laughs> figure out arbitrarily by placing my hand on the music to not be scared of that note but learn how to identify it fast and make music from it five again c so that's one pentatonic one pentatonic one from c arpeggio o arpeggio i did that that's four that's lydian so lydian mode from that point and i know so fit that's also a major seven and four no pentatonic there, but I'm covering fifth position so I can play pentatonic. That's two. Dorian. Minor seven. With a nine. Pentatonic two. That's a flat seven. That's a B flat. Blues. 
So I'm not scared of any notes because I've trained my ear to hear them fast. That's what I refer to as upload speed. Because so for some people, that's the lag. Once they're given a stimulus, it takes them a long time to know what it is. So now they have a stall. The download speed is once I hear what number it is, what content do I have available to me? So if I play this, flat five. Yeah, I'm not even scared of it that it wasn't in the key. B. So that's the, and I also can make it a note exercise because I didn't look at it. I know that B has to be the ninth fret of the D string. From that point, I play low B. myself to be musical spontaneously because I'm not I can't have any go-to licks ready because I don't know where I'm gonna land that's why I don't look at the bass when I play two Um, wow, that's super cool, man. Yeah, man, it's fun. Um, heaps of cool stuff. If people want to find out more about uh, what you're up to, bassology, uh-huh. um, you know, the world of Anthony Wellington, yeah. how, how can they do that? So, I did my first Skype lesson in 2007. <laughs> I have yet to find anybody to do Skype lessons before they know any instrument. So, I've been doing Skype lessons. Sometimes people ask me, hey, do you do Skype lessons? I was like, since 2007. So if you go to Basology.net, you can find out about the Skype lessons. If you go to AnthonyWellington.com, it'll connect you to Basology.net. Maybe not AnthonyWellington.com. I think we gave that up. But um, Basology Around the World, which is what this is about. Mm. Basology Around the World is the thing we're doing cruises. So we're doing camps on cruise lines and clinics and masterclass on cruise lines. Basology Around the World, we're bringing camps and clinics to destinations. So if you go to BasologyAroundTheWorld.com or Basology.net, you can sign up for Skype lessons or you can just send me a chat. My phone number is online. You can text me. I'm like the most accessible person on the planet. Cool. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, man. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you right Me man. too, man. Thanks for I having me. I really great. appreciate you having me. Anthony Mellington, everybody. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> mm.